seat and grab a glass. Millennial Sun Podcast. Time to wind down, swirl that glass, open up. If you like how it's feeling, catch the fire, turn it up. Y'all know what time it is. The Millennial Sun Podcast. Have a seat and grab a glass. Millennial Sun Podcast. Time to wind down, swirl that glass, open up. If you like how it's feeling, catch the going on everyone it's isis daniel also known as the millennial psalm and we are here for another episode of the millennial psalm podcast 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 Ooh, and y'all i'm so excited for this episode because i've been missing y'all and i know if you follow me on instagram and if you're not following me on all my social media platforms baby what you doing okay but i know y'all are like yo we need that next vlog we need you to talk to us about what's all been going on because y'all if you go to my Instagram, as you can see, it's been going up over here, okay? This move to uh, France has been a whirlwind of an experience because it obviously sparked a lot of change in my life, but it's also opening up doors and connections and allowing me to really reinvent and reimagine the future of the millennial psalm and what all I'm trying to accomplish. So before we even jump into what we're going to be learning and talking about on this podcast, I just want to make sure that y'all remember the point of me being here, right? We are here to conduct a comparative case study on European with emphasis on French wine culture and American wine culture so that we can find solutions to reverse the decline of interest and consumption really around the world, but specifically within Europe and in the United States. So if you're interested in learning more on how to support this research, this study, and then also how to support me, because I'm out here in Paris, supporting myself through school, move to a whole nother country because I have a dream that I am going to accomplish and follow, right? So if you want to learn more on how to support, please go ahead, go to the description in this podcast so that you can learn more, click the links, but all that jazz, let's go ahead and talk about what I just went through. Oh my gosh, last week I was up in Burgundy experiencing wine culture in a way that I never imagined I would have the opportunity to just because, yo, I just moved here and I'm already making these connections and having these experiences and also just finished my first course for my WSET diploma, D1, all right, wine production. Let's talk about it. <laughs> It's 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 a whirlwind of an experience, y'all. So let's go ahead and get into what we are going to be discussing in this episode of the Millennial Sound Podcast. Well, I'm so excited to bring my guy Carlos to Jesus on. Ooh, from Amram Cork. I went to Portugal not too long ago and I had the opportunity to go to a cork farm to witness a cork harvest and also learn so many benefits of cork. But we're also going to like round this episode off with an interesting discussion because I was editing this podcast episode and ironically enough, when I went to my D1 class, my instructor had a very specific uh, issue <laughs> with court. And I, I, you know, out of all my years of being in this industry, it's very rare that you speak to people who hate cork in the way that he did so we're going to have a discussion of that cork versus screw top thing right but then we're also going to talk about you know the opinion of our teachers and how they may i don't know 
place opinions and thoughts and feelings into us that might be accurate or not accurate, or is there a space for teachers to have opinion when teaching? So let's go ahead and get into the first part of this podcast, which I'm about to tell y'all about what I've been up to mm, since, you know, I've been in Paris. Let's get it. So about a month or so before I moved to Paris, I had a call with Jermaine Stone from Wine and Hip Hop show, The Real Wolf of Wine. Woo, woo. Shout out to my homie. Okay. But he, uh, he and I had a conversation about possible collaboration opportunities and I let him know that I was moving to Paris for school and also to conduct my comparative wine study on young wine culture, Right. And he pretty much, he was, it was, it was a really fun call, but he told me straight up, he was like, Isis, you know, I got this event. I'm collaborating with Dujac and Holt Cote. And we really, you know, we are hosting this crazy wine and hip hop event. And I think that you should be there, especially, you know, if you're trying to make new contacts. Now this was huge for me for a number of different reasons. Y'all, if I haven't made it clear, let me make it clear right now. I am living in Paris out of sheer faith. I felt that I was meant to do this study. I knew that I needed to be in Europe. I sought out reasons to go, which is why I ended up applying to different wine schools. Of course, once I got into the school, it was at this weird state, this weird time in life where of course, if I applied for scholarships and things of that nature, there were no scholarships. And even still having a scholarship in another country for your diploma, there aren't a lot of options, which is why I keep telling y'all, please um, go to the link and see if y'all can support or find somebody who can help me out because y'all, I'm out of pocket. Anyway, but, you know, this move to France and it being an act of faith, him telling me that this was an opportunity that he thought would, be, would benefit me was something I knew I had to go on. The only conflict was the day of the event was the first day of my D1 diploma WSCT class. Ah, what? Yes, that happened. So, you know, I just explained to him that, you know, I don't know if I can make the event, but he did let me know that Hote Kota, they actually, or Hot Kota. All right, y'all, I'm working on my French. <laughs> we doing our best. But he told me that they also had a series of events that they would be hosting and I would be able to go meet different wine producers and things of that nature. So I knew that this was something I had to do. So this is like week two of me moving to France. I had a week to kind of figure out my life a little bit. And then I hopped on a train, went up to Burgundy and started having this new wine experience. And I'm so grateful for all the people that I was able to meet, all the wine producers that I was able to collaborate or, you know, talk about collaborations with. But let's just talk about dreams for a second, you guys. If there is something you want to do, sometimes you have to make the crazy decision to just jump out there. And that's really what I did, y'all. I am a planner. I'm someone who thinks, how much money is that going to cost? Um, how often do I have to travel? Do I need to rent a car? Am I able to walk? Is what is how accessible is the uh, metro? Um, you know, I'm a, a extensive, extensive, extensive um, planner, and this move to Paris was a total act of faith. 
I knew I needed to be here and I came out here. And when you follow your dreams, it doesn't always come easy. Sometimes you have to put yourself out there a little bit. But really, Jermaine coming into my life in this way, because I already, you know, I was on his podcast. So make sure you check out his podcast for um, the Wine and Hip Hop podcast, right? But, you know, in reaching out to him and speaking to different people, you're able to sometimes create a new life, create opportunities. And that's exactly what what I did. I came out here. Not a clue to where what the hell going on, okay? Funding where I'm staying, funding my school, funding, you know, I'm getting ready to start my tasting Thursdays. I'm still paying for my own wines, you know, doing all of that stuff. But then when an opportunity calls, y'all, you motherfucking go. All right, I'm sorry to cuss, but that's just how I feel right now. You pack up your shit and you go, all right? And that's what I did. I packed up my stuff and I went to France. And because of connections, you utilize the people that are already in your life. People want to help you make your dreams come true. If you are willing to speak on it and to be honest about where you are, I don't have a lot of resources, but I got a dream that I believe in and I'm willing to do anything I can to make it happen. So I connected with him, went to Burgundy and had a great time, of course, going to all these wine events. But then there was a moment when everyone would talk about, you know, they were asking me like, are you going to the wine and hip hop event on the 11th? And I'm like, well, I got class. Every person I talked to, every wine producer, you know, uh, wine buyer, people who worked in hospitality, I have new friends, new people that I absolutely love and I'm excited about. But every one of them were like, you need to be here. I reached out to my school. I let them know this is an opportunity of a lifetime. You know, this is a once, like this is the first of its kind. Wine, hip hop, one spot in Burgundy, France. We're drinking fine wines and listening to hip hop music and gathering as a community and partying and having a great time. What? That is exactly what I'm talking about when we talk about the future of wine culture, about reinventing and reimagining wine and wine experiences, right? So I'm like, yo, this is checking all my boxes. I had to let my school know, yo, I need to be here. And guess what happened? My school messaged me back and said, yeah, you need to be there. We will see you the very next day. Y'all, this is my life. This is... This is my life where your your gifts will make room for you. Your gifts will make room for you if you believe in them, if you have hope in them. And that's exactly what happened. So once I said it was a go, it was a go. I stayed and um, I was able to go to this event. But y'all, let me just talk about it. And I hope I'm not sounding scattered brain, but rock with me. When I went to uh, this wine and hip hop event in Burgundy, what I saw was the future. We are trying to find solutions for the decline of wine interest among young wine consumers, right? All I saw were young people, and I saw people of all demographics, but it's important to um, assess and to point out that young people were present, they were singing. They were dancing. And most importantly, (laughs) they were drinking. Okay. And when you are able to create environments for people to thrive in what interests them, while also introducing potential new interests, which is wine, you create an environment where people are being stimulated in a way that they never thought that they could be stimulated before. Okay. And the thing about wine 
that is so important to identify is that wine is about experience. It's about sensory memory. When you taste that specific wine, especially for my wine geeks out there, whoop whoop, because I am one. When you think about wine um, and how it's connected to your senses, you can smell a wine, taste the wine, and go back to a memory. The same thing happened when I went to a wine event and I was tasting this Etna wine, which I didn't know was an Etna wine. And all of a sudden, I smelled it, I tasted it, and all of a sudden, I was back in Sicily when I went went to Etna and was tasting Etna wines for the first time. There's a smoky kind of um, volcanic character within the wine that is so obvious, you can't hide it. You know, it's so present in the wine, the terroir is there, right? But I remember being excited to taste that wine. I remember being intrigued by, you know, all the minute details of that wine that when I was somewhere else on a whole different continent, tasting a wine from Sicily, right? I was able to be back there. And the same thing was happening while I was at this hip hop event. I was witnessing people see break dancers, watch their favorite, you know, Mike D was freaking there. What's going on? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like we're watching people exist in their craft and in their um, expertise and also in their desire and their love and their passion, which is hip hop and which is music, which is dance, which is break dancing, right? Which is communion, which is, Dealing in, in being in communion with other people, you're witnessing it. And they're also drinking wine, which will mean that there are moments in their life now when they are thinking about breakdancing, thinking about music that they love, thinking about that time where they had an amazing moment in their life. It's always going to be connected to wine. All right. So, I mean, I, I know I keep talking about my case study, but you got to understand this moment when I was in Burgundy was so connected to the root of my presence being here that I'm just like, yo, I feel inspired. I feel motivated, but I also feel validated in what my idea is and my hypothesis is, which is there are many different ways to get people interested in wine, but we have to think outside the box and we have to be willing to really press the envelope, which is why going to this event was everything to me because it contextualized a thought I already had in my mind. So yeah, you know, I'm about to be putting on my own millennial psalm events. I'm about to be putting on my own, you know, I, I call it Elevage experience because that's my business, Elevage, LLC, <laughs> holla at me. Mm. But truly the concept is we need to create experiences that burn pleasurable experiences in a consumer's mind so that more and more people drink wine. But the other component that I think is also necessary is being able to do a better job of creating an atmosphere where consumers can find what wines fit their palate best without them having to overthink. Um, and you know, there's a story that I always tell, and I think I might round this uh, session off with this story, right? When I went to Tuscany, I met up with my friend Julian, um, and he is a winemaker and his girlfriend is a volleyball player. And, you know, after she had a game, which they won, shout out to her. Whoa. whoa. <laughs> we actually, um, we discussed 
the frustrations of being a consumer and having to know too much information. And in that moment, what happened was, I don't know, I was looking at her and I was thinking to myself, you know, there's a story here. You're a professional volleyball player. When you show up to work because it's your job, mm, you have to be dressed appropriately. You have to know the rules of the game. You have to play the game and you have to perform, right? Um, I can, you know, I attach that to being a psalm, a wine professional, even to my wine influencers out there. When we show up, there's a certain level of wine understanding that we are required to have. There's a, a look, a diction, a way to speak, a way to communicate that is required of us to be able to communicate all the intricate details of wine and to help others understand wine and to find, um, you know, figure out what their preferred style is, what their desire is and how to make a moment in their life feel more complete with the experience of wine. Now, the difference between a volleyball professional, volleyball player, and the people who stand in the stands, it doesn't matter if you've ever watched a volleyball game or not, or if you played volleyball ever since you were a little girl, but you decided to never go pro, so you just go to games because you enjoy them. There is a huge gap between a person who knows every intricate detail of volleyball and the person who knows everything about volleyball because they are the absolute greatest enthusiasts of the game. Both, no matter where you fall in the spectrum, can go to a volleyball game and guess what? Enjoy. Because the point is this, when you go to a volleyball game as a spectator, as someone who's watching, there is no requirement for you to actually go down on the court and play. You can know everything or you can know nothing and learn in a safe environment. But the truth is, the more you learn, the more you enjoy the game. The same thing goes for wine. We have to create experiences for people where you can know nothing or you could also know almost as much as, I mean, sometimes, you know, these wine enthusiasts, sometimes they be knowing way more than a professional every once in the blue, okay? But you can know as much as a wine professional and still enjoy wine. But the environment is so safe and it's so much fun and it's so inclusive that what happens is the novice comes in and they start to learn about the game. They start to learn about wine and small step after small step after small step, if they choose, they become the major wine enthusiasts. But then also, they don't have to become that invested in wine or that invested in the volleyball game, right? They can also be someone who just enjoys coming to the game with their friend and watching and being a part of the experience. And that is what we have to do for our wine industry. We have to create a space where the professional can be the professional and the spectators can choose how invested they want to be. But no matter what, no matter how invested they want to be, wine slash volleyball is their game of choice. You feel me? Do you see what I'm saying? That was what I experienced when I went to the wine and hip hop event. I was able to witness people from different spectrums come together, no matter if their love is for hip hop, their love is for wine, or their love is for both. We all had a reason to be there. 
And we all had our different motivations for being there. But we all left with excitement for wine and for music. And that memory will always be implanted in their minds and will, no matter what anybody says, dictate their next choice for what they want to drink. The next time they drink a burgundy wine, they might be able to pick it simply because they remember the moment when they experience the time of their life. All right. So, I mean, I know I'm going in, (laughs) but it's important that I say that because this is the point of my study. How do we create more experiences like this that fit in the narrative of a winery or a wine brand while still catering to the desires and the needs of the consumer? Because this is the other point that I didn't mention that's very important. All right. You can have a volleyball player, a professional go out there and play a game. But what is the game if people aren't in the stands? We remember those awkward COVID basketball games where they couldn't allow the fans to come and support at the physical games. Those basketball players say that it wasn't the same because they couldn't hear the cheers of the audience. The game will still go on, but is it the same without people cheering them on? No, it's not. So we as an industry have to apply that same logic. Not every consumer needs to know everything, but it is important that we Create the environment where they can join us and enjoy. All right. So that's what my takeaway was of, you know, this wonderful wine and hip hop event that I cannot wait to go to next year. And shout out to all the sponsors that, you know, helped make this uh, dream and this vision become a reality. But I want to make sure that y'all know that y'all really are hitting on something special. And if y'all want to be a part of this study, y'all let me know. Okay. Anyway, so let's go ahead (laughs) and wrap this thing up. We're going to move on to our next segment because, you know, again, we're talking about the needs of the people. And I do feel that cork is something that is a need of the people. Again, it's very interesting whenever you talk to wine um, professionals and we talk about cork and we talk about sustainability Um, we talk about plastic screw tops, uh, making it easy for the consumer. All of those things go into the topic of wine culture and wine consumption. So I'm excited to talk about this, um, with Carlos. So y'all just go on, saddle up and let's get ready to talk about cork. But again, wait to the very end so we could discuss like, (laughs) so our teachers and the people who influence our thoughts and our opinions, like how much opinion should they have? And sometimes it's important to acknowledge that opinion isn't fact. Yikes! Ah! Okay, (laughs) so let's go ahead and get into our conversation with my guy, Carlos. Let's go. (laughs) Today we have my guy, Carlos DeJesus, joining us on the Millennial Sound Podcast. Carlos is the head of marketing and communications at Amram Court. For those who are in the back asking, what is Emerald Cork? Oh my gosh, don't worry, I got you. Emerald Cork is the world's leading company over 150 years in the cork sector. They have annual sales of 6 billion closures, which are utilized by the largest and most prestigious international brands of wine, champagne, and spirits. Long time no see, Carlos, how you doing? 
Indeed, Isis. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Oh, awesome. I'm so excited to have you here. Honestly, you guys, let's take a moment and pause to acknowledge that we were actually together in Portugal, you know, having the wonderful Cork Harvest experience. I mean, how have you been since then? Missing you. I've been missing you. I'm... You've been missing me? No, seriously. Uh, it's true. It's true. It was such a, a, a magical um, few days and, and I think there was a bunch of us so while well, listening to something there was just you and I uh, there was more people around and um, shout out to PJ exactly. and Anna from um, Napa Green Napa Green yeah <laughs> that kept us real all the time uh, as, as you did and and I think as many of these trips as we made that there is always an element of surprise there is elements of, of the chemistry between the people uh, the weather, um, the sounds, the smell, everything that goes around it really, really contributes to create what I think it's, it's a very, very unique moment. In fact, one of the things that we discussed is that if you close your eyes at the moment of harvesting, mm -hmm. we, are, we are listening to the same sounds that the Romans heard 2,000 years ago. And, and I, I thought that as, as romantic as it may sound, it's actually true. Uh, at least until the tractor comes in and then the sound changes and the Romans never heard the tractor. Uh, but seriously though, it, it, it is a very special moment and I'm so glad I said that you had the chance to uh, see it firsthand. Oh my gosh. And um, you know, I'll thank you again for you know, inviting me and allowing me to experience that. Honestly, every person, especially if you're in the wine industry, I encourage you to you know, try to go out there and enjoy a cork harvest because it's a once in a lifetime experience. But also there's so many myths out there that I wasn't aware of when it comes to cork. And honestly, <laughs> I kind of want to have a moment where we can play a little game. Would you like to play a game with me, Carla? I think I'll dare, yes. <laughs> Come on, loosen up, we're having fun. All right, so we're gonna have, we're gonna play a quick <laughs> rapid fire um, questions game. The reason why I wanted to do this rather than just having the standard, oh, so what are your thoughts on this? And you know, the standard podcast format, I was energized by the knowledge. And so I wanna ask you some questions, just answer the best you can. Of course, I said the best you can as if you are not an expert in your field, but hey, come on now, rock with me. So let's ask the first question. Where does court come from? Cork comes from the Western Mediterranean Basin. So that's one of the great things that come from this part of the world that, as you know, encompasses the south of Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, but also Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco. So if you're looking for a place where you can have great food, great history, and great trees, that's the place I'm going. Mm, okay, so Portugal, we love it. But what is cork actually made from, material-wise? Well, cork is an evolutionary trick that a species a cork oak that has been around for an estimated 40 to 45 million years. So this tree has had a lot of time to adapt, to evolve, to overcome uh, difficulties that range from the type of soil, which are very, very sandy, the lack of water, um, the extreme heat. And they developed kind of an armor um, that grows around the tree and can literally and figuratively take a bullet to save the tree. That's how special that material is. It's composed by millions and millions of cells. To give our listeners an idea, one single cork stopper packs as many as 800 million cells into it. It's an incredibly sophisticated cell structure. NASA calls it nature-owned polymer because, in fact, it's a very, very 
complex, very, very unique way of nature to protect trees. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's so amazing because I, you know, I wasn't going to talk about this, but I think it's important that we go ahead because with all of those cells, right, that's actually where you said the oxygen was stored. So would you mind, and this is a sidebar question, okay, but would you mind explaining why um, corks are so vital when it comes to wine and making sure that no oxygen is getting in? Because that's a misconception that when you use a cork, it's actually oxygen from the outside world coming in slowly through the cork. So talk up to us about that. Well, um, we always heard that with cork wine bleeds, but we never really uh, knew exactly what that means. I mean, does it breathe like a scuba diver? Does it, it breathe like it has a snorkel up to the surface? Um, mm -hmm. And it took a few years of research and development and a lot of science put behind um, that intuition that we all have, that cork and, and wine and glass, by the way, that it's almost like a holy trinity here that we have mm -hmm. those three elements work well together and they have been working very, very well for hundreds of years. But we never really knew how that interaction, how that transmission uh, happens when it comes to oxygen, cork and wine. And today we know that each one of those 800 million cells that I mentioned carries uh, a little bit of oxygen inside. And at the moment of bottling, when the jaws on the bottling line squeeze that cord, a lot of that oxygen contained within those cells is going to be expelled outbound, but a lot of it is going to be expelled inbound into the bottle. And once that cord is firmly put in place in that bottle, it's going to stay there, it's going to block everything from the outside, like a guardian of that wine is the first and the last line of defense to protect that wine. And that's the reason why you can open the bottle that has decades, decades behind mm -hmm. and be absolutely amazed at how wonderful that wine is. That's because cork and glass did its job. Okay. And it goes back to what you said earlier, that cork is literally the armor for an oak tree, right? So it's doing the same thing, protecting the wine, and it's not in the same way that we've been taught Okay, and I want to make a point that we say that, you know, I am a level three WSET proud. Whoop, whoop, I'm actually getting ready to go for my diploma. I didn't tell you this. That's a new development. Oh, oh snap. That's good. <laughs> but well done, Isaac. I'm, I'm excited. But the thing is, even in class, we are taught misinformation about corks. And so I want to take a moment. I know we're doing rapid fire questions, it's not working how I thought. So it's okay. We're just going to ask the next question, right? I want to know your thoughts on cork versus screw tops, because I know us talking about corks and how it is a great, you know, resource for protecting our wines. But, you know, people still say, I mean, corks are going extinct, which we're going to talk about because it's not just spoiler. Boop, boop, boop. I would like to know your thoughts on cork versus screw tops. Well, screw tops have been around for a long, long time. Um, and I think they will continue. But when you think about the wines that made us fall in love with wine. Um, it starts It starts with that that very unique sound and goat of opening a bottle that goes well beyond that. The fact is, all the wines that we unanimously recognize as the great wines of this world, or the great wines of our life, or the great wines of, of the, the harshest critic of cork, um, the common thread that we all fall in love with wine that had a cork on top. So I think the question is, why is that the case? And cork allows for a lot of things to happen inside that bottle that other types of poetry do not allow. Mm -hmm. One of them has to do with that 
uh, interaction between the oxygen inside the cells that we talked about. It has to do also with the fact that, let's not forget, cork comes from a note. It's a core coke. So when a winemaker buys a barrel because he or she wants to have the best evolution of that wine, well, that barrel is a barrel because it came from a note. So what we're talking about here, complex, very, very complex and complicated things like phenols, for example, antioxidant compounds that are involved in all these interactions that cork brings onto the table. And in addition to that, it's also 100% um, barrier against anything that is on the outside that you don't want to get into that bubble, be it the gas, be it a rodent, be whatever it is that you're dealing with. That's something that Corgi brings to his job. So at the end of the day, it's not only the most sustainable closure, or I would say the only sustainable closure, it's also the one that from a technical point of view gives the winemaker um, the decision power to know how that wine is going to evolve. And I think that's very, very important because it is the last endological decision that the winemaker can make. And today we understand that, uh, 20 years ago, 35 years ago, I'm not sure. I think that is so profound because you're right. Um, I know that when we were in Portugal, we talked about how when we when winemakers are deciding on their closure, it's almost like an afterthought of, well, we're finally done. Let's just go ahead and use a screw top or use a cork, but not really paying attention to what kind of cork, because there's a difference between your standard cork and natural cork, right? Of course there is, um, as there is a difference between a four-cylinder engine and a V8 or a V12. Talk I mean, it. it's not just the sound. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just that, that sound, it's not just the power, it's not just the safety. What we, we had to stop doing was to design this wonderful car with a great engine um, and then pick up the color, pick up the aerodynamics, pick up everything that matters. And then, oh, what about the brakes? Well, just throw something in there. Well, brakes cannot be an afterthought. No more, the core can be an afterthought when winemakers are making this incredible difficult journey uh, to create wines that will you know, blow us off um, from our chairs. That's really what we're looking for. And without the core, until today, that process simply has not happened. I love it. Carlos, you better talk your stuff, okay? Get it. <laughs> so, Actually, what you're talking about, I'm going to um, take a quick pivot because I know that whenever we talk about corks, we always have to have that one annoying little gnat that flies around your head, right? Which is TCA. So would you mind breaking down to me what TCA is? And then I'll ask my follow-up question after that. Oh, that's a hard one. Uh, <laughs> hard one. Not just, be, not just because TCA is short for two, four, six, Laura Anisol, which is an incredibly long thing to say on a podcast, uh, but TCA is also Quark's nemesis. I would say uh, TCA is the wine's nemesis because while Quark has a big affinity with this compound, other materials like wood, like plastic, um, can certainly carry that. It's an innocuous compound, but even in minute, minute, minute concentrations, and I'll tell you in a second how minute these concentrations can be, our nose is very good at picking it up. So we are talking about something that in a case of champagne, for example, could be as little as 1.5 to 2 nanograms. Now, a nanogram is the equivalent of a part per trillion. 
How much is that? Um, I took out one drop of water and made hundred dollars inside. So that's what we're talking about. That's crazy. It is. It is crazy. And and it's crazy also if you think that our challenge to these PCA was to quality control at that level of forestry, while at the same time continue to produce billions and billions of units every year. The distance that goes from one world to the other is enormous, and a lot of people did not think that possible to bridge those two worlds. Well, we have. We have done that. I think we ought to be very, very proud about it. Um, but yes, thank you. Uh, it, could, it was quite an effort. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to also understand the sources of it, what it means. Um, and at the end of the day, it's something that if you open a bottle and you notice a certain, you know, wet carton smell and that's a certain funky uh, wet carton smell in that wine, that odds are that it's probably that 246-trichlorenisol. Mind you, completely innocuous, but it has the bad habit of ruining a bottle of wine even at those magic concentrations. So this is actually a great segue because I course before uh, having this episode I had to do my own research outside of the website okay because you guys have everything you need to know on the Amory Cork website <laughs> um, but this is actually a quote from wine enthusiasts on their site pretty much explaining what causes cork taint so I would like to know I'm going to read a few sentences and just let me know if you agree okay so TCA is formed in tree bark when fungi, mold, or certain bacteria come into contact with a group of fungicides or insecticides collectively referred to as halophenols. okay? Many producers make cork for their wine closures out of tree bark, and unfortunately, they don't always know if parts of the park were contaminated with fungicides or insecticides. If they were, their resulting corks would, be, would damage any wine they touch. So is that a statement that you agree with or is you need a little more information talk to me it, I, I think we need we need more information first of all people have to realize that there's no fertilizers no fungicides there's absolutely nothing that the core oak forest needs to survive again they have been in this planet for 45 million years we have thrown everything we could at during those 45 million years and we still have 2.2 million hectares about six million acres of cork forests around the world. So that contamination, that pollution is not generated in any way, shape or form by the cork industry or by the cork forest. That's a result of environmental pollution that when it hits the cork forest or other forests and within certain fungi, certain microorganisms like penicillium, trichodemia, when they are exposed to those chlorophenols, they will defend themselves because that's lethal for them and will create something called a 246-trichloranisol. So um, it is something that unfortunately is only present. Uh, it is something also that fortunately um, many of the cork industry starting of course without it, but there's a leader that's also what they need to do, have been able to defeat. It's not a small order, um, but I think in the end today, people can rest assured that it is very well possible to have billions and billions and billions of ports out there without any trace of TCA. You can find TCA in other materials, right? And I wanted you to actually kind of 
expound on that a little bit because I didn't understand that you could still find TCA in plastic. And if that's the case, when we talk about screw tops, which you know most are lined with plastic, right? Um, is that right. a concern that we should have or be open to talk about just because you're buying a bottle of wine and it has a cork? If you're concerned about cork taint, you should still be concerned about TCA if it has plastic. Is that um, a good statement or something to move forward with? Yeah, it's, it is pretty accurate in, in the sense that the cork is not the only vehicle to, mm -hmm. to carry TCA. Uh, we do have a particular affinity with that, but you can find that in the barrels also. You find it in the pumps, you find it in the hoses, you find it in the cartons of the boxes that transport that. So it is, as I said before, a, a, an omnipresent democracy, an omnipresent compound. Mm -hmm. um, so what I think is interesting is that because we have been able to defeat PCA in court, we are fast approaching the, the moment that uh, I, I think no one would dare to, to forecast this, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. where the best defense against DTA is exactly the material that we most associate with DTA plastic. Let me explain what that means. So if you have defeated TCA in cork, and because cork does not allow anything to permeate itself, does not allow anything into that box that mm -hmm. you argue that you're talking about. So if you have that environment contamination around the winery, around the transportation, around the storage, whatever it is, that those bottles of wine will, will pass through. If you have PCA in some of those uh, instances, then cork is no longer the carrier. Cork is now the defender of that wine against PCA. And this is almost a sweet irony at the end of the day, because after defeating something that was a truly existential threat to cork, you must not forget. Right. We are fast approaching the moment where we we can use cork as a very, very effective defense. Yeah, that, that's how much things have to right? Okay, so we have learned a lot about cork, but the thing is, Carlos, we don't know much about you, okay? So we did talk a little bit about you, but I would love to know um, how you discovered your passion for cork. I know, obviously, working with Amram um, and being and witnessing how close, like family, the company is, right? I would love to know your journey to Cork, if you can, if you want to let us know. <laughs> the journey to Cork. Uh, well, it's a long, it's a long journey. Journey that I, I am Portuguese. I'm born bred in Portugal, so I also always had this this knowledge of what Cork uh, is, what Cork represents from a cultural point of view, social point of view, from an environmental point of view. And certainly from an economic point of view. Mm -hmm. So after many, many years in, in our beloved New York City, mm -hmm. um, there was a moment where, you know, decided you wanted to grow old in New York City or not. Mm -hmm. um, and after 9-11, certainly did not feel like a good idea to grow old in New York City. Makes sense. <laughs> nope, it, it didn't. Uh, although it, I'm going to say that on, on the 12th of September, I was so angry that I decided that I was going to stay. But mm. but the fact is that about a couple of months before, you know, I, uh, me and my wife, we decided that we were going to go somewhere else. And where would that somewhere else be? Well, literally, uh, we look at the map and say, you know, what about this, what about that? And all of a sudden, I was like, hey, what about Portugal, you know? And everybody felt that I was committing career suicide. 
Because everyone always has an opinion on business they don't know anything about. Amen. All right, go ahead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Human nature, I suppose. Human yes, nature. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, it, it became so clear that uh, after going through, you know, terrible, terrible days, you know, people always talk about 9-11. Nobody, often you don't talk about what was like the days after that. Mm -hmm. uh, some of those days were as bad almost as, as the day itself. It was it was tough. And and you start wondering, you know, what not what you want to do with your life, not what you know where you want to work, not, but who do you want to be? Mm -hmm. uh, what person do you want to be? And and, and I think a lot of us uh, back then in the city had to make that decision. And the decision I made was, you know, was about trying to give back as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Try to to find a solution, a situation, a professional situation, where I could actually, you know, get out of bed knowing that I was contributing to something that was larger mm -hmm. than me, much bigger than me, and I felt in a lot of ways that that was what I had to do. I didn't know exactly what that means, to be honest with you, but after almost twenty years, we twenty years in October of doing this, I can tell you one thing. Uh, and, and again, this is something that we discussed when you, when you hear, but I really, really feel very strongly about it. And, and I want to bring it up if you don't mind, which is mm -hmm. about that fallacy that we're all facing, mm -hmm. that we've been told so many times that we cannot possibly balance social, economic, and environmental issues. Right. Well, we have to balance those three. Because if we leave one behind or two behind, we're not going to be in a better place, not at all. Absolutely. And what court does, and wine, by the way, because none of this would happen without wine. This this incredible balance between environmental, social, and economic issues happens because 13 billion cork stoppers are, are purchased every year by wineries and distillers. Wow. And that creates a value-added chain that not only makes native species, tree species, very, very profitable. Mm -hmm. We don't need to replace the core coke with some invasive monoculture species to generate well-paid agricultural jobs. The best paid agricultural job in the world is harvesting pork without ever damaging the tree. Never damaging when the it's, tree, by the way, helping um, air quality. Like, you, actually, let's take a moment, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I would love to, mm -hmm. I would love for you to talk to us about how harvesting cork is actually an asset to us Humans trying to breathe and exist in this world. Now, I know I'm, I talk weird, so just bear with me. But answer the question. I know you know what I'm saying. <laughs> well, it, it's, I, I think it all boils down to that, to that belt, to that ability to demonstrate to the world that it, it's not you know, a, a, an utopia to have a situation where you can, you can protect the air quality, mm -hmm. where you can protect the existence of water, where you can protect the existence of biodiversity, where you can fix people to the land, mm -hmm. where you can where you can prevent forest fire. And all of this by opening a bottle of wine. What? Every time yeah. I'm just trying to enjoy a good night, I'm helping my planet that you yes. know buy a bottle of wine yes. cork. It's amazing, yes, right? You yes, you are. But that's that's exactly what it means every time you open a bottle with that has a cork. If you're making a, a demonstrable direct contribution to to demonstrate that it is possible that it's not a utopia to balance people, planet, and profit, and that's what we are doing. And that, I says, gets you out of bed in the morning a lot of times. 
because if you're not able to demonstrate that it can be done, then there's always going to be a bunch of guys wearing, you know, hat ties with with good suits. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was a very bleak reference to <laughs> things that we don't want to get into. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, but um, snide remarks aside, we we have to be able to demonstrate that when I'm when someone says it's an utopia. Mm-hmm. I can raise my hand and say, no, excuse me, there's one place in the world where this has been done. And if there is one place in the world, hey, maybe there are two places in the world. But in the process, you debunk that very, very dangerous fallacy, that line, let's call it space, space yeah, that line that it's impossible to balance people, planet, and property. We have to. Right. It's absolutely fundamental. And you know, um, in that balance, I want to make sure that we highlight that cork doesn't get wasted. So you know how we were talking earlier about how, um, you know, if it cork has TCA or has any type of fault that we cannot use, you don't just throw those corks away, right? How do you repurpose it? I just want to make sure we talk about that really quickly before we wrap up, because it's a sustainable natural resource that we need to celebrate, buy, use, support. So please let me know about that. If if you if you harvest one ton of cork, you're going to use one ton. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is considered waste. In fact, we consider waste a, a raw material that is in the wrong hand. Um, because if it is in the right hand, it's raw material, it's not waste. Right. And in our case, we take that very very seriously. So absolutely nothing is is goes goes to waste. In fact, when we cannot use a cork for whatever reason to punch stopper out of it. Um, we use that for flooring. Mm-hmm. We use that for aerospace application. We use that for footwear. And now summer uh, is definitely here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and look around every time you see a pair of Birkenstocks, well, that's cork in it. Yeah. Um, so there's a bunch of applications, heavy engineering, heavy construction, subways, the lightest subway system in the world. It was made by a German company and it uses cork. takes 18 tons out of the full weight of, of, a, of a city subway system. That's amazing. Um, you can use for surfboards. Garrett McNamara, the great American surfer, holder of the title of the biggest wave ever surfed until recently. Now he's going to have to re- regain that title. Uh, used a, a, a board made out of cork. Um, that, that's unbelievable, the number of applications. So even energy. I was going to say, we need to talk about that energy. Don't forget it. <laughs> no, no. 67% of our energy needs comes from zero emission for us. When the granules are so fine, so fine that you cannot make another another application out of it, or even flooring or any of the other applications, you can use that as energy generation. So 66%, 67% of our energy needs comes from zero emission for us, which is remarkable. The more ports we produce, the more that number is going to go up. So if that's not circularity, I don't know what it is. Okay. All right, Carlos. Everybody, let's make, I know you guys are listening, but let's have a round of applause for Carlos because honestly. Thank you. Thank you. You have been an absolute um, pleasure to have on. I mean, honestly, I'm just happy to see you. I wish that I could be there with you in person because, oh my gosh, being back in the States, it just doesn't fit me. I'm ready to go back to Portugal. <laughs> Welcome back. You know that the fastest um, flight, the, the direct flight. Is, is, yeah, plenty of direct flights. That's, that's helping a lot to bring a lot of Americans over. And that, that's so refreshing, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. 
Um, but at the same time, it's a country that is sending more expats mm -hmm. quicker uh, than before. So, uh, you know, those are the guys that have passports. So, Come visit. Next time you want ISIS, the whole country is ready. I will be there. Everyone, thank you so much. But Carlos, again, thank you so much and everyone from Amram Cork for joining us and educating us on quarks and wine. Um, but for now, you guys, let's go ahead and get to our next segment. I'll talk to you soon. All right, y'all. So we're going to jump right into this last segment because, baby, I love you, Carlos. But we got bigger things to discuss. Now, when I was in my class for my D1 D1 being for the WSCT Wine Spirit Education Trust based out of London, okay, level four. D1, D2 are the first two modules that you have to take a course in and pass before you can take the final uh, D3 through six, right? But in wine production, we talk about closures. And it was a very interesting experience to go to my class where we're discussing all these major topics about wine production, right? To the vine, the grape, to wine production, all the way to how we close and sell these wines, right? My instructor, I mean, I ain't gonna hold you guys. It, it took me for a loop. Because I assumed when he started talking about corks that he was going to be pro-cork. Usually whenever we talk about screw tops, you hear, you know, if someone's trying to be a little more inclusive, yes, screw tops are, you know, a thing that really became really popular in New Zealand and Australia. A lot of people associate screw top uh, caps with you know, low quality wines because of the wines that were being produced at the time when they first came out. People are against screw tops because they want to support corks. Corks are number one, great for the environment, but they also help with bottle aging. And then there's the argument of, well, we're not always trying to age our wine. So screw tops are a great indicator that yes, you can go ahead, drink that wine now. 90% uh, of the wines that are sold in market are not going to be aged most people purchase with intent to drink and you know there's a there there's so much I mean I feel like I just gave y'all a lot of information in a short amount of time but there's so many points that we can discuss on screw top versus cork and when both are appropriate but my instructor came into the class and he had a very specific opinion and the reason why I said it like that was because it was awkward <laughs> I mean, listen, I know that someone could argue. We just talked to Carlos. He works for Amram, a cork company. So how reliable um, is the source? Am I listening to him and taking everything for face value? No, I've done my own research outside of Amram Cork, and I have my own opinion of when cork is, a, uh, is the best choice and when screw tops are the best choice. However, I was taken back in the classroom because it was... The reasons why he formed his opinion went directly against the research that I have. And to me, if you want to be pro screw top and anti cork, there's enough evidence out there that you can form that opinion without spewing certain opinions that are being spoken about as if they're fact. One thing that he mentioned that was absolutely just not accurate was the idea that he said that the cork industry was promoting this idea of aging wine through oxygen coming in from outside of the world through the cork slowly and aging the wine. And 
as we know, because we've already talked to Carlos, right? This is someone who works for the company, but they've also done extensive research. And this is a court company that is saying the exact opposite. No air goes through the cork. The oxygen that is entering in the wine comes from directly the cork, the small molecules that are found in the cork. And so to me, while I'm sitting in the class, because y'all, I do not argue with people. Mm -mm. When you come at me with a certain amount of energy where it sounds like it's your way or the highway, I will shut up and mind my business. And that's just fact. But I had a problem because to me, it felt like his opinion was more important than the facts. And as an instructor, I do feel that it is our responsibility to make sure that when we educate our students on whatever, that we are able to identify what is fact and what is opinion and even leave room for error because sometimes our opinions are based off of false information simply because we're emotional about the topic that we're speaking on. And that's kind of how I felt. So I would love to know uh, y'all's thoughts on this topic, especially because as a wine educator, which I do take pride in saying that I am, I try my best to only come with the facts and to put my opinions on the sidelines because I never want my opinion to sway anyone who is trying to learn more about wines or experience wine for the first time. But I even think that that notion should go towards production and corks versus screw tops and all of the deets because it's important that if you believe sustainability is important, talk about sustainability. You can talk about, you know, uh, screw tops being lined with plastic and how that's not good for the earth, but still give people room to make their own decisions. Um, that's just me. So y'all tell me what you think. Quick little um, hot take on that. As far as my wine and food, wine and food, my wine and music pairing, I actually have an autumn leaf catalog. Uh, that's the new, that's the name of my um, new playlist. It is a little bit, mm, it's a little fun. It's definitely giving fall vibes. And I definitely think that you guys should pair this playlist with any type of skin contact wine, um, especially my orange wine lovers. This playlist is especially for you. So I hope you guys take a listen. Um, these This playlist was actually inspired by this new song that I found called Conceited by Lola Young. She is this girl from London. She's totally a vibe uh you know it's it's, it's cool I, um, I came across this song on instagram and i was inspired to create this whole new playlist so i hope you guys enjoy it grab you some skin contact wine and let's just fall into a beautiful autumn experience this season so thank y'all for listening i love you and of course you will see or hear from me next week on the millennial song podcast all right i love you bye Y'all know what time it is, the Millennial Song Podcast, have a seat and grab a glass, Millennial Song Podcast, time to wind down, swirl that glass, open up, if you like how it's feeling, catch the fire, turn it up, y'all know what time it is, the Millennial Song Podcast, have a seat and grab a glass, Millennial Song Podcast, time to wind down, swirl that glass, open up. Catch the